Um, okay, so like was said in the scripture reading, we're going to be looking at two texts this morning. And so why don't you turn to Luke chapter 2, and we'll start there in Luke 2. And then we'll jump back to Isaiah 9 in the Old Testament. But I, I want to read a, a few verses from Luke chapter 2 to kind of give you some context of, of where we're going we're, we're gonna to go. In the opening verses, which were read this morning already, we hear about the birth of Jesus Christ. But beginning in verse 22, there's a period in Jesus' life where he is taken to the temple for some purification rituals. And that's where I want us to pick up because we're going to meet an old man named Simeon. So let's read in Luke 2, verse 22. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, speaking of Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the spirits brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Well, this is the very word of God and the account of Christ's first days incarnate on this earth. So I've got a question based on this text. I want you to think about what could make you content to die. You've heard that phrase, I could die happy if. What possibly could happen for you to genuinely feel that and to say that? Now, I know we say that often, maybe as a phrase, I've heard people say some ridiculous things. I could be, I could die happy if I ever get to go, I, I heard one person say, swimming with a blue, blue whale. You go, okay, so I get it. You really want to sl- swim with a blue whale. I doubt, though, after you swim with the blue whale, you're really going to say, okay, that's me done. I'm ready. Um, so, you know, people use it as a phrase, but, but really, what, what could you encounter that would make you embrace death itself? that great enemy, that unnatural enemy of death. Well, 2,000 years ago, we just met a man from 2,000 years ago named Simeon, who is an old man, who embraced death in peace because of what he encountered. Rather, not what he encountered, but because of who he encountered. 
Simeon met a baby. A baby. Now, babies are sweet. They're cute. They're fun. Example number one, I'll show you my little baby, Evangeline. Some of you are grandparents. You get the best part because you get the sweet, cute, fun part. Babies are also exhausting and tiring, and um, they can wear you down because, in large part, they're dependent, totally dependent. They're not fully autonomous in the sense of if you leave a baby alone, it's not going to survive very long. It needs other, it's dependent to be fed, to be cared for, I mean, every element of life. And so in that time, certainly 2,000 years ago, that would have made a little baby a precarious situation as well. You catch the wrong cold and that child might not make it through winter. And so how is it that Simeon, a man who had lived many years, meets a baby and in the face of that, that greeting says, well, I can now die in peace. Look at verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. As soon as he meets the child, his first response is, okay, welcome death. I can now die. Who was this little baby? Well, he was the one who will bring peace in the face of death. And I want us to discover this child this morning. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look into who this child was. We're going to see his identity and we're going to see what he did. Now, just a couple of notes. Um, look at verse 25. I want us to just think about Simeon for a minute because Simeon was a good uh, Jew. He was, he was a faithful Jew, and we know that because we're told he was in Jerusalem, and he was righteous and devout. In other words, he knew his religion well, and he loved his God. He was a devout man. He was a student of the word. And this is saying a lot because um, I think understanding the scriptures for these the, the Jews back then um, had greater significance even than for us today. And what I mean is this, by the age of 10, most Jewish children had the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, memorized. Okay, so have you ever read Levit Leviticus? And you've thought, man, like, this is going to take me a month to get through. A 10-year-old Jewish child would have had that memorized. And so their standards for devotion and <laughs> uh, uh, devout being devout was pretty high, and Simeon, an old man, was a devout Jew. So he was a righteous man. He was godly. He would have known his scriptures inside and out. He was a righteous man. And so, therefore, the next phrase, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah were not lost on Simeon. The Old Testament, which was just the Hebrew scriptures, his scriptures, was not a closed and irrelevant book to old man Simeon. He understood the prophecies that a Messiah was coming, a messianic figure who would redeem and rescue Israel, and he was waiting for it, which means he had faith. He believed it. And even though he hadn't at that point seen it with his own eyes, he was an old man, 
He believed it was coming. He was a devout and righteous man. Now, um, that, that wait for Simeon, like, like all Israelites who are righteous, was a long and arduous wait. Because we're, we'll look at it more in a second, but Israel had a checkered past, didn't they? They, they, they were not always faithful to their Lord. And so the righteous amongst them had to wait, even as they saw the people around them, their fellow Israelites, rebelling and losing faith and not holding to the word of God. And so it was a long and arduous wait, an agonizing wait, as Simeon would have been surrounded by many often rebelling, rebelling, self-righteous, arrogant uh, countrymen. But Simeon knew that salvation was coming. And that salvation, look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he was actually told by the Holy Spirit that you're going to see that salvation come. And isn't it beautiful that he's told he will see the Lord's Christ? That word Christ Christos means Messiah. That's the anointed one. There were three people that would have been anointed in, Ju- uh, um, in Israel, and that would have been a king, a prophet, or a priest. And we're told that the ultimate anointed one, the Mashiach, the Christos, the Messiah, is coming, and Simeon's going to get to see him. So Simeon is just holding on to this promise of the Holy Spirit. And what's beautiful here, I just want to point out, is Simeon understood what so many don't, and it's this. Our salvation as Christians is not a method. It's not an ideology. It's not a a mantra, we say. It's not a set of rules. Christianity isn't just a set of rules, don't do this and do this and Our religion is a person. You see that there? Simeon's waiting for the consolation, the peace of Israel. And he was told, you're going to see the Lord's Christ. You're going to meet the deliverer. And so Simeon was waiting for the Lord's Messiah. And on this day, when he met a little baby coming to the temple for purification, he found his Messiah. And he was ready to embrace death. Who is this baby? I want to know who he is. And some of you are saying, well, I know who he is. It's Jesus. Yeah, I get that. But we're going to discover the reality of this Jesus. And we're going to discover the reality of his ministry. And to do that, I want us to turn back to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to have, I have a a, a simple outline, just two points. We're going to look at the child's identity and the child's authority. Now, why are we going to Isaiah chapter 9? Well, excuse me, as, as I wanted to get into Simeon's mind of what he was anticipating, right? And Simeon only had the Hebrew scriptures. And so as he was thinking of the Old Testament prophecies of this Messiah, I don't know if he went to Isaiah 9 in his mind, certainly at some point as he was anticipating, but this is what he was familiar with. This is what he was holding on to, promises like Isaiah chapter 9. Oh, and also, um, Isaiah is a Simeon-like character. Isaiah um, was also a, a 
righteous and devout Jew who is faithful to the promises of God. And so he, like Simeon, was waiting for the Messiah, and he would have agonized in that wait as he struggled with Israel's rebellion. You know what I mean by that? Uh, that there were faithful men in Israel who were looking to the promises of God, and yet their fellow Israelites so often were just running around with pagan gods and rejecting Yahweh. And it, it was agonizing. Isaiah, remember in Isaiah 6, says, I, I'm among a people of unclean lips. He's describing not only his own fallenness, but he's looking at the nation of Israel in disrepair and saying, we are not faithful to our God. And so like Simeon, Isaiah was waiting. And like Simeon, he also received word about this child, this baby that would come and rescue Israel. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, and we will read, just to start, verses 6 and 7, but then we're going to get some context. So look at verse 6. For to us a child is born. Now, this is word God's giving to Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, so Isaiah was given word about a coming child. Now, let me just give you a word of context about where we find ourselves in Isaiah's prophecy. Over and over, Israel invited God's curses because of their rebellion. It's the same story as you read your Bibles. God is gracious to Israel and says, I will bless you, just follow me, walk with me, obey me, and you will have mountiful blessings, you will have the, everything supplied for you, and Israel just keeps turning their backs. We can't relate to that, can we? Um, isn't that so often the pattern of our lives as well? In the face of God's mercy and kindness, we return to our sin. But here, instead of Israel enjoying this protective canopy over them and being guided by Yahweh and cared for, in the context of Isaiah 9, Israel as a nation is in confusion and darkness as they are, as one man puts it, the prey for the nations around them. So Israel is experiencing judgment. They are prey. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all of its banks. What's he saying? Because they've rejected Yahweh, God is bringing the king of Assyria to conquer and to rule. Now, I didn't see many of you like shake a little bit when I said Assyria because we're so far removed. 
But the name of Assyria would have caused terror to anyone it was said to, because the Assyrians were a brutal and violent, vicious people. The, the Assyrians were known for their violence. If they had to have a national sin, violence was it. We know that in large measure from the book of Jonah. Jonah was sent to the capital city of Nineveh in Assyria. And as soon as God says to his prophet, hey, go share my message to Nineveh, which by the way, is his only job as a prophet, Jonah says, no way am I going to Nineveh. I don't want them to be saved. And honestly, I think we can be a little judgy toward Jonah because we say, Jonah, come on, you're a preacher, preach, man. But Jonah had good reason to despise Assyria. Assyria was a vicious people that would torture, for, for the sake of torture, men, women, and children of any nation they conquered. In fact, um, when the king of Assyria calls for repentance, Jonah eventually goes, uh, he says, let each man turn from the violence that is in his hands. The king knows we are a violent people. And they were a brutal neighbor of Israel. And so for Israel to face the wrath of Assyria was a terrifying thing. And what we discover here <clears throat> is that Assyria comes and sweeps through Israel. The conquest began in Zebulun and Naphtali and swept through the Hulev Valley. And the main trade of Israel was overtaken as Assyria swept into the northern kingdom to overtake them and to capture them. And the Assyrians were a terrifying, mercilessly brutal, uncommonly cruel people. Look at verse 21 of Isaiah 8. They will pass through the land, God says, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Oh, when Israel looks to God as Assyria plunders, they will only see darkness because of their sin. So that's the context of our passage is wrath. And it was not without good reason. Israel had utterly abandoned the Lord and had rejected his mercy. Okay, so that's a terrifying reality, and it's one in which Isaiah was living. But here's a beautiful reality. God would not stay angry. So if Israel looked up and all they saw was the dark clouds of gloom, at some point there's a break in the clouds and the light shines through. Mercy is on its way. And that's what we find here in Isaiah chapter 9. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter, later, latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then he breaks into this glorious promise that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There is peace coming. There is rescue on its way. And let me just say this to you as a Christian, or if you are not a Christian, if you 
aren't sure about this Christianity thing and this, this God of the Bible, over and over, all we see of the God of Scripture is that this God is defined by mercy and grace. Even in the face of our great rebellion and rejection of him, grace breaks through. That was the pattern for Israel. You know, it wasn't their rebellion which brought peace back. It wasn't their, or, uh, their repentance, I'm sorry, that brought peace back. It wasn't their repentance that brought mercy. It was simply God looking at his people in distress and pitying them. And because of his love, demonstrating mercy toward them, he refuses to let his people go. And so, we see Israel in distress, but mercy is coming. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 9. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That mighty, cruel, brutal rod of Assyria that's oppressing Israel, God is going to break it, and he's going to free them. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, war is over and peace has come. What a glorious prophecy. What a glorious ray of hope that Isaiah is sharing with Israel. And the question is, how? How is this peace going to come? How is the rod of Assyria going to be broken and the, the Israelites freed from the bond of their oppressors? How? And verse 6 tells us, for to us a child is born. Now, that should sound a little ridiculous. In the face of the greatest threat known to that world of Assyria, the, the, the most terrifying military and the oppressors who are ruling and conquering and sweeping through their land, how are we going to be freed? How is mighty Yahweh, the God of Israel, going to free his people? A baby is going to be born. To break the back of their oppressors and deliver a nation from judgment? This isn't your average baby, is it? So let's look at who this child is. Let's, let's notice from verses 6 and 7 first, the child's identity. This isn't the first time Isaiah has mentioned a child. Back in chapter 7, verse 14, he, he talks about, um, let's see, 714, he says, the, the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so the, the sign of Emmanuel, God is going to give a sign of hope for his people. And he mentions a child who would be born by a virgin and his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Isaiah has already been speaking about a coming child. But here in chapter 9, he gives us the fullest explanation of who this child is. And the first thing we notice about this child's identity is that he will be called a son. For us, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
It will be a male child, a son. And notice, the son will be given. It's as if God is giving this child as a gift. It's his son, and he's giving it to us. It's a similar language we just saw in Isaiah 7, 14, if we notice. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So this child is a son, but just note that he will be given as a gift. And who will this son be? Well, look at his names down in verse 6. We're going to look at his government in a minute when we look at his authority and his ministry, but but notice the names he's given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now that word wonderful um, might be a little bit lost on us because we sometimes, we just use that word to mean like, oh, that's great. Like if somebody brings you, um, oh man, what's that really delicious cake, fruit cake for Christmas? Don't we love fruit cake? And we go, oh, that's so wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, just kidding. Um, unless you love fruitcake. Um, we use that word wonderful kind of lightly. But in scripture, if you think about the ways that wonderful is used, it actually is speaking about something extraordinary or miraculous. Remember when Job is being humbled by God and God's saying, where were you, Job, when I drew the foundations of the earth? And he's laying Job low. And Job repents and he says, your ways are too wonderful for me. He's not just going, oh, your ways are great, God. He's saying they're, they're too supernatural. They're too big. They're too extraordinary for me. David says the same thing. Your ways are too wonderful for me. Your thoughts are too wonderful for me. That word wonderful carries the idea of extraordinary or miraculous or supernatural. In Genesis 18, 14, we hear that question, is anything too wonderful for Yahweh? In other words, is there anything too supernatural, too great for Yahweh? And the answer, of course, is no. And here we're told that this child will be the wonderful counselor. Counselor, just referring to wisdom. He will have almost supernatural, wonder-filled wisdom. In Isaiah 28, we see the same designation given to, explicitly given to God himself. Listen to Isaiah 28, verse 29. This comes from Yahweh of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So this coming child is the wonderful, the supernatural counselor. He's further called mighty God. Now, some want to say, well, that's not necessarily a, a, a divine uh, name because oftentimes, and you could think about it, El, the Hebrew word for God, is used in a lot of names, right? Ezekiel has the, the name of God. And so some want to say, well, no, 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 this doesn't necessarily mean he is mighty God. It's just talking about the power of God. However, if you turn over just a chapter, look at chapter 10 and verse 21, we see that same name 
referring explicitly again to God. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. They will return to their God, and he is called the mighty God. The same name given just moments earlier of this child. He's called everlasting father. A child who is the everlasting or the eternal father. Father in this sense, meaning the leader or the head of a tribe. Oftentimes, kings were seen as fathers over their people. And he is this eternal, everlasting king, this everlasting father. He's called Prince of Peace. This child is given this term or this this, um, title, Prince of Peace. He's a child who will bring peace. Now, um, I think when we think of peace, again, we can sometimes think of more just an inner kind of psychological feeling of calm. Like when you have a lot of little kids and you say, I just need five minutes of peace. I just need peace and quiet. And when we think of peace, we think of like serenity. And and that's right. Uh, Peace does, there is a serenity to peace and a calmness to peace. However, in this context, we need to remember, this is in the context of a brutal Assyrian invasion. This is in a context of Israel historically and over hundreds and thousands of years Um, rejecting their God and being handed over to other nations to be ruled. Um, This king, this mighty God, this child who will rescue them is called the Prince of Peace, not because he gives us just some inner psychological moments of serenity, but because he is a king, he is a prince who is strong enough to conquer the enemy in order to bring the peace. Uh, In fact, when oftentimes um, Jewish people speak of shalom, there's a funny term that some uh, use to define shalom. Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. They say, shalom means I win, you lose. Because in the context of this world, in order to have peace, you've got to defeat all the disruptors of peace. If you're going to have peace surrounded by brutal pagan nations, You must be the greatest king, the strongest nation with the most powerful military in order to secure that peace. And so this designation, Prince of Peace, I don't think we should think of just calm serenity. We should think of a conquering force in battle, a man of war who is strong enough to secure that peace for his people. Who is this child? If you were in Israel at this time, this word from Isaiah would have evoked anticipation and a yearning and a longing. Bring this child quickly. Mixed with some mystery. Who is he? When is he coming? How is he coming? What will he look like? But bring him quickly. Think secondly, how Isaiah describes this child's authority or his ministry. Look at verse 6. A child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
That's elaborated on in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There's three things I want to point out about this child's authority from what Isaiah says. First, his authority is final. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Um, look at the end of verse 7, from this time forth and forevermore. There's a finality here. There's something eschatological here. There's something that's not temporary here. He's speaking of a king who is going to rule absolutely, ultimately, in finality. There's an, well, he just says it. There will be no end. And so his rule will expand and his influence will be endless, bringing peace without end. I mentioned this morning Psalm chapter 2. I think it applies here as well. Well, it does apply here as well. Um, in Psalm chapter 2, listen to how Yahweh describes his king. In verse 6, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. All of it is yours. There's a finality to this king's rule. Friends, this is no ordinary king. Ordinary kings reign for a time and then stop. In Isaiah chapter 6, have you ever noticed when we have this glorious prophecy of the Lord sitting on his throne? Do you notice how that chapter begins? In the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a king that brought stability to Israel because of his reign for decades. It brought peace and security. Uzziah is ruling. And this prophecy comes when Uzziah dies. Because every king dies. Every reign ends. But not this king's. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You know what this presupposes? That no one will be able to successfully oppose him. And no one will dethrone him. No one. Because his authority is final. Secondly, Isaiah reveals his authority is covenantal. It's at a covenantal authority. Well, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. So he brings in the Davidic king. The government on his shoulders. Now, this has big implications because of the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David, I will set a king on your throne who will rule forever. Your kingdom will last forever. Your throne will rule forever. It will never be destroyed, never conquered. And David, of course, was the first king to sit on that throne. And what a king David was. What a king, a man after God's own heart. He's the boy who defeated Goliath, the mighty warrior, the sweet psalmist of Israel. What an incredible influence David had on Israel's life, both geographically, uh, both militarily, is that a word? And religiously, King David wrote much of what was the, the songbook for Israel. He was the ultimate leader, the one they looked to, the powerful King David. He was the first on his throne. 
but he wouldn't be the last because David would die and then his son would rule and what a king Solomon would be. But then he would die and his reign would end as well. But this king will be the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to David. You will have a king who sits on your throne forever. And this child will sit on that throne. But not just as another king in the line, he will be the king. Notice, of the increase, there will be no end. He will establish that kingdom and he will uphold that eternal kingdom. His authority is covenantal, which means it's the fulfillment of God's promise. And finally, his authority is just. Notice how he will rule with justice and righteousness something that ultimately could not be said of any other king. Even David, a righteous man, a just man, but how often did David's transgressions put Israel into trouble? What a child this is. You can understand the anticipation. All of Israel on the edge of their seats waiting for thousands of years, generations in anguish, thick darkness. When will this child deliver us? And time kept moving and moving, and there was no sign. But the righteous ones in Israel never doubted, and they kept waiting. Why? Look at verse 7 again, and the last phrase, the zeal of the Lord, that Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the the name of God, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. And so a righteous man like Isaiah believed that and held on to that because that's what faith is. Now, I think we should just think about it in our own lives for a moment. Faith is believing that what God said he will do, he will do. Even if you don't see it, Isaiah didn't see it in his lifetime, did he? Simeon got to the end of his, he saw it, but it took many years. Israel's waiting for this child, this final Davidic king who's going to conquer and rule and give freedom, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're not seeing him, and yet the righteous in Israel never doubt because Isaiah says, Yahweh will do this. His zeal, his enthusiasm, Enthusiasm is guaranteeing that this is going to take place. If God said it, he'll do it. And friends, there's a beautiful simplicity there. Maybe some of you are wrestling with faith or you're wondering, what does it mean to have faith? It's so beautifully simple. Believe that what God said he will do, he will do. But believe what God says about himself. Believe what God says about you. That's where faith begins, isn't it? You are made in the image of God. You are an eternal, never-dying soul of great worth and value. But you've rebelled against your creator. And you've run into the arms of sin. And judgment is coming because of the just law that you have brought upon yourself. You are a guilty criminal who deserves to be punished. Do you believe that? That's faith. Believing what God says about you is true. But then believing what he says about himself. I am a savior who will rescue you from your sin. Come to me. 
Faith is so simple. I think we can muddy it with so many difficult definitions. It's simply believing God and entrusting yourself to the reality that he is who he said he is, and he'll do what he said he'll do. That's faith. And so it didn't matter how long they waited. They waited. Isaiah waited. Simeon waited and waited until Christmas. Until Christmas. Okay, like not maybe December 25th or whatever, but until Christ was born. The qualified baby showed up. The only child who ever qualified to be characterized by this prophecy of Isaiah showed up. And that's what takes us back to Luke chapter 2. So t- go run back to Luke chapter 2. The wise men, they saw it in ja- verse 8. <laughs> they hear that an angel appeared to them. Let's just read it. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. Remember, angels are scary. Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What this angel is saying is, he's here. The baby is here. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What a contrast this is. We should feel the weight of that contrast, even as Isaiah is describing this child. But then we're thinking, no, this is an actual baby that is being described as a mighty God and this king and this prince of peace. And here the angels show up and say, the Savior is here and he's in swaddling cloths. There's a contrast there that should strike us. And this brings us back to Simeon, of course. Um, He meets this baby, as we read earlier. And he knew, he believed, God was fulfilling his promise to deliver Israel and the world through a child. Now, let's just, let's just think and read this hymn that Simeon, I don't think he sung it, but it's beautiful words at the beginning of verse 29. When he, when he takes baby Jesus in his arms, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Now, notice that, according to your word. Friends, there's faith again. He believes the word of God. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I just think, it's. I was trying to think of an illustration and I couldn't, so I'll just bring you into the mess of an illustration here. Uh, Have you ever seen like uh, in a movie where, you have, it's not a time capsule, but a zooming through time and space, like from one event, like zooms forward to another or back in time. I'm just thinking of Simeon here and I'm just wondering what's going, as a man who had so much of the scriptures memorized, as he's holding this baby, what's going through his mind? I mean, it's almost like so many prophecies probably coming to the forefront of his mind as he's holding this child and he's just feeling the weight of this prophecy that his forefathers waited for. They knew of this child, but they never saw him. And there he is holding this baby in swaddling cloths in his arms. And he's thinking of all the prophetic utterances, the promises God had of who this child would be. And there he is in his arms. And Simeon just breaks out in praise. And what's interesting is these are real people. 
Like we read this story kind of ho-hum. These are real people who sort of, Mary and Joseph sort of knew what's going on. Mary, did you know? Yeah, I mean, she knew some of it, right? But I don't think she fully got the weight of everything. So she's sitting there looking at Simeon and who knows, maybe she'd been up the night before because baby Jesus was struggling to sleep and she's tired, and Joseph's going, we've got the purification rituals, and she's going, oh yeah, the turtle doves, okay, I got the turtle doves, and who knows what's going on, but they're human, it was very normal, and they're coming up to the temple, and then all of a sudden, this old devout Jew comes and takes their baby, and just breaks out in praise, and we know how they respond, because Luke tells us, look at verse 31, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. They didn't go, yeah, come on, Simeon, we know. Carry on. They're going, whoa, our baby. It's just hitting them. The weight. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. In other words, the world. Salvation has come for the world. And Mary marvels. They had no idea just how incredible this deliverance would be. They would see the fulfillment of Isaiah 9 in a son, a child born that was not just their son, but was the only begotten son of God, who as we're told in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son to save the world, that all who believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Mary and Joseph would come to understand in the course of their life more and more what it meant that they were given a son, a gift from God, and this son was indeed a wonderful supernatural counselor. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is wisdom incarnate. And he walked the earth as mighty God. This little child would be called mighty God. And so he is. I just think of, of, of Jesus in the gospel of John invoking the name of Yahweh some eight times before Abraham was, I am the name of Yahweh, the independent one, the God who rules the universe, dependent upon nothing, completely autonomous of himself. I am, Jesus says, a name invoking the name of Yahweh upon himself, mighty God walking this earth. Everlasting Father, Jesus the King. How often did I, well, think of Jesus before Pilate saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate questioning him, oh, they say you're a king. Are you a king? And Jesus says, I have a kingdom, but it's greater than what you can see, Pilate. I am a king, this everlasting Father who would rule his people. Friends, think of Christ as the Prince of Peace, bringing peace between God and man by reconciling us to a holy God. How? By making us holy. Not only in the courtroom of God's justice, by imputing his, his righteousness to us and our sin to him by being slaughtered in our place, but he actually indwells us and fills us 
with, with strength and grace to, to be holy as he is holy. He is the prince of peace who, who reconciles rebellious man to a holy God. But not only that, he brings peace between man and man, doesn't he? What do you think the church is? But a community of peace where all different walks and backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses and you have so little in common with so many people around you and yet this is your family. You've been brought into the world of love known as the church. Why? Because the Prince of Peace has united you in him. And ultimately, friends, isn't he going to bring peace on earth? Revelation 21 He'll return and wipe every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Friends, this prince of peace, Mary and Joseph, are hearing from Simeon. This is the one, and they're marveling, and they would just grow in their astonishment of his authority. As this king walked the earth and demonstrated authority over the natural elements, the winds, the waves, fig trees obeyed him, water to wine, the molecules of water obeyed him. He demonstrated power over the natural order, over animals. How often would he tell fish to go into the net? You think about those moments where Jesus controlled the fish or said, hey, fish, have a shekel in your mouth. We pass those so quickly, but Jesus Christ controlled the animals. He had authority over the demonic. When he would preach, the demonic would shriek and cry and plead and beg, do not cast us out. Do not cast us into our judgment. It, it's too soon. They acknowledged who he was. Oh, the demonic hate Jesus Christ, but they never question his authority, often referring to him as the son of the most high. They know who's in control because Jesus Christ is the ultimate king who demonstrated authority even over sickness. He healed lepers. He cured the lame, paralytics, the blind, the mute, the deaf, the incessantly bleeding, those with dropsy, seizures, curved spines, fevers, withered hands, epilepsy. He reattached ears and he raised the dead to life. Jesus Christ demonstrated authority over all things in this earth, even logic. How often were his opponents left without a word? Astounded by his reason, astounded by his logic, astounded ultimately by truth. He is truth and speaks truth. Friends, Jesus Christ showed authority over the heart of men. He humbled the arrogant, exposed secrets, uncovered motives. He knew man like no one could know man because he has authority over the hearts of men. And Jesus Christ demonstrates authority over death itself. Remember in John 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up again. He had authority over death itself. It doesn't matter what kind of authority you possess in this world. No one can conquer death, but Christ did. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Christ himself said. Friends, there is no other child ever born who qualifies to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. He is the king of kings, the mighty God, and the everlasting father. Well, I want to give you two thoughts as we close very briefly. Final reflections on Christmas 
Isn't this just like God to use a child to deliver the world? One man says God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere baby. And isn't that God's way to use the weak to shame the proud? He comes as a lowly infant wiggling in a cradle. That's God's way. But secondly and finally, I want us just to think as we go on God's purpose. What was his purpose in bringing this child? And it's simple. It's to save. God's ultimate purpose, no matter how dark our rebellion gets, is to save. And friends, this ultimately lands on you and me. Look down again at Luke 2. His mother and his father are marveling, but then look at what Simeon tells them in verse 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Friends, the coming of Christ is not simply a cute Christmas story. You see what Simeon, that old, wise, devout man does? He looks at the mother and father of the Savior, and he brings to bear this child's birth onto them and says, this child will pierce your own soul. He'll expose you. And because of this child, you will either rise or fall. Friends, whatever you think of Christ, you need to know this. It is because of Christ that you will either stand in eternal glory with your maker for all eternity, or you will fall in judgment for rejecting him. Friends, this child, you cannot be neutral to who he is. His ministry was too grand. His reality is too great for you just to shrug off and say, we'll see. Simeon himself turns. I just think of the power in that moment as Mary and Joseph are standing there, just jaw, you know, mouths gaping open. What are you saying about our child? And Simeon turns and goes, and you're going to fall or rise with him. He's going to determine your fate. What you do with Christ determines everything about your eternal fate. Friends, Jesus Christ is a gracious Savior who has come to rescue you from your sins. And we celebrate that reality this season on Christmas Day and every day. For those who've experienced this reality, it was enough for Simeon to go, all right, I can die. I've met him. I need nothing else. Friend, if you haven't yet met him, come to Christ today. He says, I am gentle and lowly. My burden is easy. My yoke is, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Come to me. I'll give you rest for your souls. And you'll meet the Savior that Simeon was looking forward to, Isaiah, an entire nation, but a Savior who would come and save this world from its sin. Let's pray. Father, please help us to grasp and understand the reality of your Savior, Jesus Christ, who came as a baby 
unassuming, unimpressive, but who rose to be a king to whom every knee must bow, proclaiming he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Father, may every heart in this room bow to the kingship of Christ. I ask in his name.